our very first episode of Oral Max Facts. We are extremely excited to have this opportunity to bring some critical topics and discussions in oral and maxillofacial surgery. My name is Maria McBarry. I'm a resident in OMS in New York, and here with me today is my partner, Dr. Reedy Patel. She graduated from Mount Sinai Hospital Residency Program in New York and is currently a faculty member at the University of Cincinnati Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery Department. Our friendship began at Penn Dental in Philadelphia and has continued through our OMS residencies. We wanted to kickstart our talk with an important topic that's dear to my heart, obstructive sleep apnea. Thank you, Miriam. I want to start with thanking you for listening and subscribing to our podcast. Our mission with this podcast is to not to make you all experts in the field, but to help you with your clinical practice, board exams, and most importantly, patient care. We all strive to be better clinicians, better oral maxillofacial surgeons, and we would love to help you through this journey. It is my pleasure today to be talking about obstructive sleep apnea, from here on referred to as OSA, on our very first episode of Oral Max Facts. As we all know, this is a broad topic, and it is impossible to cover everything in one lecture. So we are going to hit key points and try to stay focused on our specialty of oral maxillofacial surgery. The main objectives of today's lecture is to define and briefly summarize etiology and comorbidities of OSA, summarize the pathophysiology and clinical features of it, review diagnostic modalities, and summarize treatment. And we'll finishing up with some questions. Miriam, let me start with an on-site question. A 40-year-old woman consults you regarding her microgenia. Her occlusion was corrected years ago with orthodontics, and she suffers from mild obstructive apnea. What surgery would you recommend? Here are your options. A, alloplastic chin augmentation. B, an autogenous bone graft to the chin. C, a mandible sagittal split osteotomy. Or D, an advancement genioplasty. Hmm, I don't know. Let's take it from the top. Maybe you can tell us what is obstructive sleep apnea. OSA is the most common form of sleep disordered breathing. The most simple definition of OSA is collapse of the upper airway during sleep, resulting in airflow obstruction, oxygen desaturation, and repetitive arousal. For some individuals, this narrowing is significant enough to cause turbulent airflow or snoring. Now, I want to clarify that snoring in itself is not a pathologic event, but it does suggest narrowing of the upper airway. And if this narrowing continues, it eventually results in an obstruction of the upper airway and a cessation of airflow, which is an obstructive apneic event. Apnea is dry from a Greek word, right? Meaning without breath? Absolutely right. This obstruction leads to an arousal from sleep, which increases muscle tone, reestablishes airway patency, and allows a normal airflow. Now, what happens in patients with OSA is that there's a repetitive pattern of upper airway collapsibility, airflow obstruction, and resultant arousals. OSA is a frequent health problem in the general population, and there are some life-threatening consequences to this disease. OSA is associated with daytime sleepiness, increased motor vehicle accidents, 
and it may adversely affect cognitive function, mood, and quality of life. In fact, out of 40,000 deaths due to motor vehicle accident, sleep apnea made up 20% of it, more than cell phone and alcohol combined. One of the first landmark studies was done by Wisconsin Sleep Cohort Study in 1988. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1993. This study showed that the estimated prevalence for sleep disordered breathing was 9% in women and 24% in men, defined as an apnea-hypoapnea score of 5 or higher. But the prevalence of OSA has been redefined over the last few decades. Based on several large population-based studies, it is currently estimated that at least 1 in 5 American adults has mild sleep apnea and 1 in 15 have moderate or severe apnea. Classically, the gold standard for definitive diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea requires an overnight polysnography or sleep study. That brings us to our next point in the discussion, apnea-hypoapnea score. Reedy, can you please help us understand what that is? Yes. OSA is classified by apnea-hypoapnea index. I'm going to go over some very important definitions here. In adults, obstructive apnea is defined as absence of breathing for 10 seconds of more, despite an effort made by the body to breathe, decreasing airflow by greater than 70%. Clinical definition of hypoapnea is 30% reduction in thoracoabdominal movement or airflow as compared with baseline lasting for at least 10 seconds with 4% or more reduction in oxygen saturation. Another type of event is termed a respiratory effort-related arousal, RERA, which is defined as more than 50% decrease in nasal pressure and increased work of breathing associated with arousal. The apnea-hypoapnea index is defined as the average number of abnormal breathing events per hour of sleep, and it helps us determine the severity of OSA as mild, moderate, and severe. Mild is 5 to 15 events per hour, moderate is greater than 15 to 30 events per hour, and severe is greater than 30 events per hour. The clinical diagnosis of OSA requires either an AHI of 15 or more, or an AHI more than or equal to 5 events, along with symptoms such as excessive daytime sleepiness, unintentional sleep during wakefulness, unrefreshing sleep, last snoring reported by a partner, or observed obstruction during sleep. Another most commonly used index to define the severity of OSA is Respiratory Disturbance Index, RDI. RDI is calculated as an average number of episodes of apnea, hypoapnea, and RERA per hour of sleep. RDI is defined as mild, moderate, and severe, with mild being RDI of 5 to 15, moderate is greater than or equal to 15 to 30 events per hour, and severe is greater than 30 events per hour. Considering we have two parameters showing OSA severity, when do we know which index to use for treatment? That is a very good question, Miriam. There is no universal consensus between specialists and insurance carriers 
as to whether the AHI or the RDI should be the standard index used to determine treatment. With Medicare being the most confusing as it varies by region as to whether AHI or RDI can be used. A study by Goding and Downing in 2010 found that 30% of symptomatic patients would have been left untreated if the AHI was reported rather than RDI. Huh, thanks for clarifying that. Essentially, OSA is due to upper airway occlusion secondary to neuromuscular failure and primarily involving hypoglossal nerve and genioglossus muscle. However, upper airway obstruction can happen in a number of locations. Therefore, the site of occlusion is critical to diagnose. Normally, genioglossus muscle activity decreases during sleep and inspiration due to the negative airway pressure. This results in the tongue falling backward, causing obstructive upper airway closure, which is obstructive apnea, or narrowing, which is obstructive hypoapnea in susceptible individuals. Next, let us talk about clinical factors predisposing to OSA. So what are the predisposing factors to OSA that we are most likely to encounter in our specialty would be craniofacial abnormalities or disproportion as seen in Pierre-Robin syndrome, benign tonsillar hypertrophy, oropharyngeal malignancies, macroglossia, nasal obstruction, and acromegaly. There are also strong links between obesity and OSA. Another important factor is the sleep position. Supine position while sleeping may increase the predisposition to OSA when compared to lateral decubitus position as the tongue is more likely to fall backwards and obstruct the upper airway. There may be genetic predisposition to OSA. Studies have shown that relative risk increases by a factor of two in a first-degree relative of an affected patient. Other factors associated with OSA would be hypothyroidism, smoking, and alcohol use. Now that we are familiar with the definition and pathophysiology of OSA, Miriam, can you discuss the consequences of OSA? Sure. OSA has been linked to various neurocognitive comorbidities. As we mentioned earlier, it includes excessive sleepiness, reduced performance, traffic, workplace complications, cognitive impairments, depression, and even erectile dysfunction. If OSA goes untreated, it is highly associated with long-term cardiovascular morbidities, including resistance, high blood pressure, arrhythmias such as AFib, MI, stroke, congestive heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, insulin resistance, and increased mortality. The pathophysiology of heart failure in OSA is fascinating, and it comes down to three immediate adverse biological consequences. Here's already one is abnormalities in blood gas consisting of repetitive episodes of hypoxemia and hypercapnia, followed by reoxygenation and hypocapnia associated with recovery from apnea. Two, large negative swings in intrathoracic pressure, and three, arousal. Repetition of these events occurring night after night has adverse effect on cardiovascular function and structure, starting with the changes in the pulmonary vasculature resistance. 
These changes in pulmonary vascular impacts the right ventricle dysfunction and dilatation. Reedy, can you tell us what is the pathophysiology of OSA that leads to experiencing excessive sleepiness and reduced performance? Sure. Apnea and hypoapnea is typically associated with the cortical arousal such that the patient with OSA cycles between wakefulness and sleep. This cycling makes it harder to achieve deeper stages of sleep and leads to poor sleep quality. There are many screening tools to help a physician diagnose OSA. Reedy, can you please tell us more about these screening tools? Normally, physicians would inquire about sleep quality, snoring, excessive daytime sleepiness, witnessed apneic episodes by partner, gasping, choking during sleep, non-refreshing sleep, morning headaches, and decreased libido. Symptoms related to cognitive dysfunctions also be noted, such as decreased concentration and memory, and impaired occupational performance. There are several questionnaires developed to grade OSA risk. These include the Berlin Questionnaire, Epworth Sleepiness Scale, Functional Outcomes of Sleep Questionnaire, the Sleep Apnea Quality of Life Index, and Stop Bang. Miriam, what does Stop Bang stand for? Okay, it stands for snoring, tired, observed apneas, high blood pressure, BMI more than 30 kilogram per meter squared, age more than 50, neck circum circumferences more than 17 inches in male and 16 inches in female, and male gender. All the useful these questionnaires have high false positive and false negative rates. And, as with all predictive rules, these screening tools should not replace a physician's clinical judgment. The sensitivity of these models is high at 76 to 96 percent, but their specificity is low at 13 to 54 percent when compared with polysomnography. Therefore, when there is a high clinical suspicion for OSA, the patient should be referred for polysomnography to confirm the diagnosis. As mentioned earlier, the gold standard for diagnosis of OSA is overnight lab-based polysomnography, which defines the presence and severity of OSA. During the sleep study, electroencephalography, electrooculography, and chin electromyography are used to detect stages of sleep. Without going into too much detail, respiratory events are scored based on airflow, thoracoabdominal motion, and oximetry signals. While multiple metrics are reported, the most commonly used index are the AHI and RDI as discussed earlier, which helps to determine the disease severity. Riddhi, tell us how do we examine a patient with OSA? Physical examination involves recording of vital signs, BMI, as obesity is a risk factor for OSA, and neck circumference. A neck circumference of 17 inches or greater in men and 16 inches or greater in women increases the risk of OSA, as well as description of the airway from nose to pharynx. Redundant oral structures may cause oropharyngeal obstruction. Therefore, one must pay attention to potential sites of nasal obstruction, tongue size and position, palatal length and thickness, and pharyngeal crowding. 
Friedman palette prediction, initially proposed as a tool to predict responsiveness to uvulopalatal pharyngoplasty, is another simple clinical evaluation that could be performed to document palate position, tonsil size, and BMI. For our purposes, targeted interventions are important to determine specific site of upper airway obstruction, which can occur at different levels such as nasopharynx, oropharynx, and hypopharynx. The Fujita classification divides the airway in three categories based on the anatomic location of the obstruction. This is an important definition to know. So Miriam, what is the Fujita classification? There are three types. Type 1 is retropalatal. These patients present with narrow oral pharynx, with large tonsils, uvula, and pillar webbing. Type 2 is retropalatal and retrolingual. These patients present with oral and hypopharyngeal obstruction with low arced palate and large tongue. Type 3 is retrolingual. These patients have hypopharyngeal obstruction from retronathia, floppy epiglottis, and enlarged tonsil. Thank you, Miriam. Another classic method used to assess the level of obstruction is awake nasopharyngeal endoscopy with Mueller's maneuver, which is forced inspiration with closed nasal and oral airways. The site, retropalatal and or retrolingual, and magnitude of the obstruction are noted. Greater than 75% obstruction is typically considered severe, and surgical correction at the involved anatomic site is indicated. Drug-induced sleep endoscopy, DICE, is another testing modality which more closely mimics the sleeping state. A comparative study by Source et al. published in Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery in 2013 suggests that although awake and sleep endoscopy are equally good at detecting retropalatal collapse, DICE identifies retrolingual collapse more often, particularly for those with low Friedman score. However, there is conflicting evidence as to whether DICE results in improved surgical outcomes and that it may lead to unnecessary surgical interventions. Just a brief discussion on the anesthesia choice for sleep endoscopy. Steamer and Dithia performed a review of 77 articles published in Laryngoscope in 2016, which concluded that in comparison to propofol and midazolam, Persidex's mechanism of action appears most likely to induce natural sleep pathways. The depressant effect of midazolam on medulla and the ability of propofol to change sleep architecture happen to be the major drawbacks of these agents for dice. Notably, studies in human subjects have shown that Persidex sedation allowed for all stages of sleep with an increase in stage 2 non-REM sleep which is the stage at risk for sleep-disordered breathing. Miriam, why don't you tell us about the role of office imaging studies in management of OSA? Sure. The lateral cephalometric radiograph is the initial diagnostic study of choice to evaluate facial skeleton when surgery is being considered. It is a valuable tool for obtaining important airway measurements, including important airway parameters, such as the distance from the hyoid bone to the mandibular plane. Normal is 11 to 19 millimeter. The posterior airway space measured from the base of the tongue to the posterior pharyngeal wall 
normal is 9 to 11. The length of soft palate measured from the posterior nasal spine to the uvula tip. Normal is 34 to 40 millimeters. In office CBCT or hospital graded CT, an MRI also provides three-dimensional and volumetric information on the upper airway and surrounding soft tissue. But not only they're not cost effective, but the current technology doesn't allow us to take a more accurate presentation of the airway. Okay, now that we know the definition of OSA, pathophysiology, and diagnostic tools used to measure the severity of the disease, let's dive into the treatment, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. The treatment of OSA begins with a proper diagnosis, recognition of the level or levels of the upper airway obstruction and severity of the disease. The AHI is the metric most commonly used to assess success of OSA treatment. Surgical cure is defined as a reduction in AHI to less than five events per hour whereas surgical success has historically been defined as a 50% or greater reduction in AHI to less than 20 events per hour, mainly to help facilitate comparison of outcomes. Non-surgical management, such as lifestyle changes, weight reduction and alcohol avoidance, sleeping on the side, external nasal dilators and steroid spray should be initiated immediately regardless of severity of the disease or anticipated surgical plan. Studies have shown that a 10% weight loss improves the RDI by 26%, whereas a 10% weight gain worsens the RDI by 32%. Alcohol or any other sedatives can worsen the RDI in patients with OSA. Other non-surgical treatments include continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, oral appliances, and modified sleep positions. CPAP is the first-line treatment of choice for OSA and should be offered to all patients diagnosed with OSA, although patient compliance is noted to be poor. A 2008 review article by Weber and Grinstein, published in the Proceedings of American Thoracic Society, found a CPAP non-adherence rate of 46% to 83%, when adherence was defined as CPAP use for at least four hours a night. Oral appliances enlarge the upper airway by modifying the position of the tongue and associated structures of the upper airway. For patients with AHI 20 or less, oral appliance works. These appliances are usually more effective in less obese patients and those with skeletal facial deformities. Or appliances seem to be similar or slightly better tolerated than CPAP, and success rate is noted at 47%. There are side effects associated with these appliances, such as excessive salivation, temporary TMJ discomfort, and malocclusions. The TMJ discomfort is due to stretching of the posterior ligaments, and some patients may even develop class occlusions and need orthotreatment. It's important to discuss this with your patient as a possible side, side effects. For patients with severe AHI and those who do not tolerate or find any noticeable improvement 
in AHI or RDI with CPAP or an oral appliance, surgical options should be considered. Ah, surgery, my favorite part. So the goal is to increase the posterior airway space and decrease the collapse of the airway. Let's talk about surgical options and indications for surgery. Tracheotomy was once considered the gold standard for OSA because of its 100% effectiveness, but it is no longer used except for very extreme cases. The standard of care now is site-specific or staged surgical reconstruction of the airway. Consider bariatric surgery for patients with morbid obesity that is refractory to weight management. Nasal surgery does not typically improve OSA, but it may help the patients that need high CPAPs because of nasal obstruction, such as septal deviation or turbinate hypertrophy. Tonsillectomy or adenoidectomy are considered for patients with severe adenotonsillar hyperplasia, a common pediatric condition. Orthognathic surgery is recommended for patients with severe jaw deformities with maxillary and mandibular retrognathia. Because OSA typically involves more than one anatomic level or area of obstruction, a combined surgical approach is warranted in most cases. Riley and Associates described a two-stage process. Phase 1, multilevel surgery, and Phase 2 is maxillomandibular advancement. Phase 1 multilevel surgery is a combination of different procedures, each aimed at increasing the size of the pharyngeal airway at a specific location. Miriam, tell us what are Phase 1 surgeries? Sure. The first one on the list is uvulopalatopharyngeoplasty, or W-palatoplasty, which could increase oral pharyngeal airway by shortening the soft palate and removing tonsils. Another one is base of tongue reduction to increase retroglossal airway. This is either done by robotic surgery or radiofrequency. Hyoid suspension is another option in phase one surgery to, and the goal is to increase retroglossal airway by suspending hyoid to bony chin and bringing it forward. Genioglossus advancement prevents posterior airway collapse by advancing the bony chin segment containing genioglossus and geniohyoid muscle. And more recently, soft palate pillar implants are an option. They stiffen the soft palate and reduce the amount of snoring and improve sleep apnea. Implantable stimulators are relatively recent addition to surgical options for patients with OSA and have received U.S. FDA approval in 2014 for treatment of moderate or severe OSA in adults. Stimulation of the hypoglossal nerve activates airway dilators, including the genioglossus muscle. The cure rate of phase one multi-level surgeries is only 13%, defined as post-operative AHI less than five. The success of phase one multilevel surgeries is 55%, defined as post-operative AHI less than 20, and a 50% reduction in AHI, as mentioned earlier. Current evidence shows that UPPP, hyoid suspension, genioglossus advancement show improvements when medical management fails. But these studies have not used sleep study 
post-operatively to document improvement. And the success in this study is based on subjective outcomes. If stage one surgery was considered a failure, maxillary mandibular advancement is performed as stage two surgery. In 1990, Riley and Associates reviewed 40 patients undergoing stage two surgery and found a 97% success rate. MMA addresses multiple levels of obstruction, decreases airway collapsibility by advancing the skeletal framework via Lefort 1 maxillary and sagittal split mandibular osteotomies. MMA has been shown to improve posterior airway space and increase the stability of the lateral pharyngeal wall, thus preventing its tendency to collapse. Candidates for MMA are those who meet criteria for surgical management of OSA and either have skeletal facial deficiency or can aesthetically tolerate MMA. Those with severe OSA are likely to derive the most benefit from MMA. Few data are available about the degree of advancement required to achieve maximal benefit for the patient with OSA. An often cited study by Riley et al. suggests that mandibular advancement should be at least 10 millimeters. According to a study conducted by Rojo Sanchez et al., this 10 millimeter advancement usually results in an increase in the upper airway space of approximately 6 cubic centimeters. Success rates of MMA vary in the literature. Wade and colleagues reported a 65% success rate, RDI less than 10, when MMA was the sole treatment. Prinzel reported 100% success, RDI less than 10, in 50 consecutive patients when MMA was combined with genial advancement. The cure rate is reported as 43.2%, using an endpoint of an AHI less than 5, the success rate has been estimated to be 86%, defined as postoperative AHI less than 20, and a greater than equal to 50% reduction in AHI. The rate of major complications is 1%, and the minor complication is 3.1%. The major complications are mostly cardiac events, and the majority of minor complications are malocclusion and sensory disturbance of the face. According to several long-term studies, 80% of patients who underwent MMA had a reduction in AHI of 20 or less. A bone graft is recommended when advancing more than 6 millimeters. There is an aesthetic concern with maxillary protrusion after MMA. Superior positioning of maxilla helps to avoid the gummy smile. Reduction of anterior nasal spine helps prevent upper tipping of nose and alar cinch suture helps with widening of columella. Post-op sleep study is recommended six months after MMA. Systematic reviews suggest that blood pressure control improves after MMA. Subjective sleepiness, as assessed by Epworth Sleepiness Scale and Quality of Life, as assessed by Functional Outcomes of Sleep Questionnaires, have been shown to improve after MMA. An important question to ask is whether MMA is a viable option for those with extremely high HI values. In a recent retrospective case series by Gooday et al., published in 2016 JOMS, patients with HI greater than 100 who underwent MMA with the Lafort and mandibular sagittal split osteotomy advancement of greater than 10 millimeters were evaluated. 
they found a drop in mean AHI values from 117.9 to an impressive number of 16.1. That is impressive. So to conclude, the morbidities and mortalities of untreated OSA far outweigh the individual complications of non-surgical and surgical intervention. Miriam, what are the key points to take away from today's lecture? One, OSA is a common sleep disordered breathing resulting from obstruction of upper airway with cardiovascular, psychological, and neurocognitive consequences. Two, there are multiple screening tools exist to determine the presence of OSA. However, polysonography is the gold standard for diagnosis. Three, AHI and RDI are the indexes most commonly used to determine the severity of OSA. Four, various non-surgical management exist for treatment, such as CPAP and oral appliances. Five, surgical treatment consists of phase one and phase two stage reconstruction of the upper airway. Six, there is a compelling evidence that MMA should be the treatment of choice for patients with moderate to severe OSA who are intolerant of CPAP or oral appliance. Mariam, now going back to our question from the beginning of this lecture, what do you think the answer is? I'll repeat the question. A 40-year-old woman consults you regarding her microgenia. Her occlusion was corrected years ago with orthodontics, and she suffers from mild obstructive apnea. What surgery would you recommend? A. Alloplastic chin augmentation. B. An autogenous bone graft to the chin. C. A mendable sagittal split osteotomy. Or D. An advancement genioplasty. I would have to go with advancement genioplasty. Advancement of the genial tubercles and genial glosses muscle will help this patient cosmetic and positively impact her obstructive sleep apnea. That's absolutely correct. A sagittal split osteotomy alone will create a malocclusion. Neither a chin implant nor an only bone graft to the chin will advance her genial tubercles or suprahyoid muscles. That's the end of our talk today. We really hope that you enjoyed it. We want to thank you for your time and attention. You will be receiving questions from us after every topic that we discuss. So please make sure to answer them to receive CE credit for listening to our podcast. Stay tuned for more interesting topics on Oral Max Facts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Oral Max Facts or our website at oralmaxfacts.com spelled as O-R-A-L-M-A-X-F-A-X. You may also email us your cases for us to display on our website or Instagram. Until next time. Goodbye.